Today, the FBI is placing Ramon Eduardo Arellano Felix on our 10 most wanted fugitive list. Ramon Arellano Felix, hermano mayor y jefe del cártel. As the gang's enforcer, Ramon decided who got whacked, as one U.S. official put it. Officials say he once tested a new gun by killing a pedestrian he happened to pass in his car. Something that Ramon used to constantly say, we're already damned, we're going to hell anyways. So there's no sense having a conscience about it. On a sunny Sunday afternoon in February 2002, Ramon Arellano Felix, the number two man in the Arellano Felix drug cartel, was shot dead. Photographs show his corpse sprawled outside a pharmacy in the Pacific Coast city of Mazatlan. A semi-automatic pistol lies a few feet away with a number two painted in red on the handle. Nearby is the body of the cop who shot him. Ramon Arellano's death and the shocking events that followed that year would eventually lead to the collapse of one of the world's most feared drug cartels. But that kingpin theory, the idea that drug trafficking and violence would end once the cartel's leaders were gone, it turned out to be wrong. Instead, the violence in Tijuana was about to escalate. I'm Sandra Dibble, and this is Episode 5 of Border City, a podcast from the San Diego Union-Tribune. It's about Tijuana, a city known for violence, drugs, and migration to the United States. But it's also a city where I, like so many others, have found a place and a purpose. A city of exuberance and hope. There are two stories about how Ramon Arellano was killed. One story has Ramon traveling to Mazatlan to kill a rival in the Sinaloa cartel. He and his men turn the wrong way down a one-way street. Some cops try to pull them over for a routine traffic stop, and the shooting begins. The other story has the officers working for the Sinaloa cartel. In that story, Ramon's death is a hit, not a twist of fate. We'll probably never know what really happened that day. Like so many crimes involving the underworld or drug traffickers, there's no tidy public resolution. But what happened next to Ramon's older brother, Benjamin, is well documented. Ramon Arellano Félix, el señor, señalado por las autoridades mexicanas junto a sus hermanos, de marzo del 2002. This arrest is a great victory for Mexican law enforcement. A month after Ramon's death in the central city of Puebla, Mexican soldiers surrounded a two-story house in a quiet cul-de-sac. Ramon's older brother, Benjamin, the cartel CEO, was there visiting his family. Sometime after midnight, 15 men in combat fatigues burst through the door. They found Benjamin in bed with his wife. She pulled a gun. He persuaded her to put it down. The man who founded the cartel and oversaw its operations for so many years surrendered without a struggle. Sometimes it seemed like I was reporting from two cities. The Tijuana, where I spent so much of my free time where people raised families, celebrated holidays, and dreamed of a brighter future. And the Tijuana, where bloody rivalries of drug traffickers spilled onto city streets, where shifts of power in the hidden underworld pierced the surface in unexpected and often shocking ways. You couldn't always see it, but in the mid-2000s, danger hovered over Baja California like a dark cloud. 
Antonio Martinez Luna was a state attorney general at the time. He routinely received death threats. Every day. Every day. At one point, Martinez Luna got a tip that 150 people were coming to kill him. He had a half dozen bodyguards, but they couldn't possibly hold off such a large group. So he created a hideout in his office. The ceiling of my, of my room had those, those boards, those uh, squares, and I got a ladder. I removed two of the squares, and on top of the closet, I put my, my, my uh, bedding and my fire weapons and a lighter, uh, light fire, uh, light. And then I took the ladder and pulled it up and then closed the, the, the squares again. Said, if they come in, they're, gonna, they're not going to find me. So I, I slept there for three nights. Until, until we were able to determine if it was true or not. I had, to, I had to assume it was true. With his two older brothers out of the picture, the youngest Arellano brother, Francisco Javier Arellano Felix, was now leading the cartel. He was called El Tigrillo, the jungle cat. But the cartel's hierarchy had weakened, and El Tigrillo was starting to lose control. Rivals from Sinaloa were jockeying for power. The criminal underworld infiltrated every level of law enforcement. Nobody knew who to trust. Drug traffickers paid or pressured police to share critical security information, to guard drug shipments, or to carry out kidnappings and assassinations. I learned a new expression, plata or plomo, silver or lead. In other words, take the bribe or take the bullet. Steve Duncan, the former California law enforcement agent who served on the Arellano Task Force, understood the challenges his Mexican colleagues faced. It's a different reality down there. They're not as well-equipped as the drug traffickers, so they can't take them on like we take them on here in the United States. And they have to survive in their world. The traffickers know where they live, where their kids go to school, where their wives work. And when you're taking on 10 vehicles, armored vehicles with guys totally tacked out in tactical gear, You have to pick your battles. Talking with Steve Duncan reminded me of a personal encounter I had with a police officer. It happened soon after I moved to Tijuana. My car had been stolen, and the soft-spoken patrolman consoled me as I wept in his car. He talked about his family and his love for sports. Did he, too, end up in the grips of drug traffickers? By this time, I'd reported on the border for more than nine years. But going home still meant traveling to Washington, D.C. That's where I went for holidays and birthdays. It was a special occasion if my family came out here. When my brother Charles visited from Baltimore, I'd take him to Hidalgo Market to buy tamales. Charles loves to cook. We'd join the crowd of shoppers and squeeze past covered stalls filled with the foods and fragrances of traditional Mexico. Do you tell people back east that you have a sister in Tijuana? I do. Yes, I do. And they, what, what's their reaction? Um, they look a little worried, actually, when I tell them. <laughs> I tell them it's great. Tijuana is fabulous. They should go. It's nice to be in a foreign country that's so close to the States. I mean, you just sort of cross the border and you're in another, another world. But that's fascinating to me. In 2003, 
my 80-year-old mother flew in for a visit. Cleo Dibble was a diplomat's wife who had traveled all her life. She'd taken me skiing in the Swiss Alps, swimming in the Mediterranean, wandering through the ruins of the ancient Greek Acropolis. Now I was showing her a place that I had come to love, a gritty Mexican border city that she never imagined visiting. For breakfast one day, we met my reporter friend Dora Elena at La Espadaña. It's in the upscale Rio zone and is filled with touches of old Mexico. Handmade corn tortillas, café de la olla, flavored with brown sugar and cinnamon, eggs bathed in spicy brown mole sauce. My mother and my friend didn't speak the same language, but they somehow reminded me of each other, both strong, independent women who embraced life and didn't back down. Dora Elena remembers that breakfast. She seemed like a very elegant woman, very refined. She seemed like a woman who was very sure of herself. I felt like you were very happy that she had come to visit Tijuana. I had the impression that you felt more protected with your mother here, like you were returning to your childhood, no? <laughs> my mother and I ended that day in eastern Tijuana, off a dirt road at my friend Angela's little house. She prepared a special treat for us, potato tacos deep-fried and served with lettuce, avocado, and salsa. My mother usually held fast to her exacting European tastes. She hadn't tried much Mexican food, but she thought Angela's tacos were delicious. Food builds bridges, it seems, even across the most distant borders. It had been six years since Adriana Odoyan's oldest brother went missing. Alex was abducted as his mother was trying to drive him to safety in San Diego. Cristina Palacios de Odoyan had been searching for her son ever since. Adriana said one day her mother got a call. And they called my mom, and they said they wanted to talk to her. It was an agent with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. They wanted Cristina to go to San Diego for a meeting. It had been nearly two decades since the youngest and oldest Odoyan brothers had fallen under the grip of the Arellanos. Alfredo was now in a Mexican prison, sentenced to 50 years for killing a federal police commander who dared to speak out against the Arellanos. Alex hadn't been heard from since he was dragged from his mother's arms. The family assumed he was dead, but Cristina held onto a flicker of hope that he still might be alive. Adriana went with her mother to the meeting in San Diego. Alex's oldest daughter went too. They told us that Alex was swimming with the fishes. That's, this is what the, the quote-unquote that the agent gave us. Adriana said that at first, her mother couldn't absorb the news. After the agents told us, she kept on thinking, no, it can't be true. And she, I, I guess it was probably like a month or two months later that she came to realize that, that he was gone. Without hope for herself, Cristina found solace in helping other families search for missing relatives. She marched alongside them as they walked silently through the streets, holding pictures of their loved ones. She cut a dramatic figure in the crowd, a tiny chain-smoking woman, 
with big glasses and a mane of thick gray hair. Her days as a country club matron were long gone. So do you think uh, it transformed your mother? Or, no, did she, definitely. or did she find stuff, strength that she didn't know she had? Or what do you... No, she always knew she was strong. Like I said, she, always, she was always a pit bull. Whatever she wanted to do, whatever she wanted, she got. I mean, she was very persistent. I covered several of those silent marches. I remember one in particular, the time hundreds of people carried sunflowers in honor of a 27-year-old television executive. The young woman was gunned down in front of her home. It was just around the corner from the Odoyan's house. Six months earlier, her brother had been shot to death in the same spot. On June 22, 2004, the Tijuana Newsweekly Zeta was the target of another brutal crime. That's the investigative publication whose editor, Jesus Blancornelas, was badly wounded in an attack back in 1997. This time, it happened across the street from the Big Boys restaurant, where I met friends and sources for coffee. Laura Ortiz was in the Zeta office that day, writing a story when the call came in staff member had been shot. Lauro immediately called his older brother Francisco, who was out on sick leave. Francisco didn't answer. La Cornela sent a photographer and Lauro to the crime scene. As we get out of the car, we can see several reporters. And just with their expressions, they tell me everything. I walk a few more feet and then I see the car. And my heart starts racing. That's Lauro describing what happened that day. An agent tries to stop me, but I push aside the yellow tape and I keep walking. I walk once or twice around the car. I'm doubting, not quite understanding, but I see that it's my brother there. I immediately call Don Jesus. I tell him it's Pancho. Pancho was the nickname Lauro used for his brother. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is Day to Day. In Mexico, police are investigating yesterday's shooting death of a journalist. A masked gunman shot and killed Francisco Ortiz Franco on a Tijuana street after he had buckled his two children into the car. Francisco was shot in the chest, head, and neck by a masked man who fired a 38 caliber revolver through his car window. His 10-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter jumped out of the back seat. They ran until someone pulled them to safety. Francisco was one of Seta's founders. His death hit Blancornelas especially hard. Adela Navarro was working that day. She's now the newspaper's co-editor. Blancornelas wept. He broke down. He was on the verge of closing the newspaper. He said to me, Adela, Adelita, he called me Adelita, I want to shut it down because what do I want? What follows? That they kill you? No, no, no. I have to understand that in this country there are no conditions for the kind of journalism that we are doing. Francisco was the third staff member killed since Seta was founded in 1980. 
I remember trying to find strength somewhere because we were all profoundly affected that day. We told Blancornelas that we have to continue, you cannot close the newspaper, we have to push forward for Pancho, for Hector, for Luis, for everything that has happened to us. If you close the newspaper, the criminals will realize that this is the way to go about shutting down newspapers. Lauro believes his brother was killed because he wrote an article that angered the Arellanos. He was revealing how drug traffickers, people from organized crime, were using ID cards from the attorney general's office. What he did was tell of the process of when they went to get their photographs taken, where they were taken, and how much they were paid. Lauro warned his brother against putting his byline on the story, but Francisco just shrugged him off. He did not realize that he was in very dangerous terrain. Adela said Francisco's murders have never been named, much less brought to justice. The government has left us completely alone. Julian Leisaola was keeping track of what was happening in Tijuana, and he didn't like what he saw. Era como un volcán, no? It was like a volcano. From the outside, it looked peaceful, but inside, the lava was cooking. In 2004, Leisaola was leading a state police force of 400 officers. He was a trim, athletic man in his mid-40s. He'd spent 25 years in the Mexican army. Then he retired young and started working for the state. There was something about the way he talked, softly, but with intensity and conviction, like someone who expected to have his orders obeyed. People still called him by his military title, Teniente Coronel, Lieutenant Colonel. Leisa Ola was outraged to see so many crimes going unpunished in Tijuana. I remember how terrible it was. I knew how the armed groups moved, the convoys for pickups, five or six pickups. I would drive around at night pursuing them, but I never ran into anyone because the municipal police would advise them that I was there. Leisaola remembers the first threat he got from the Arellanos. About December 2004, they sent me a message that I should calm down, that I should allow them to work, and if not, they were going to kill me. Leisaola trusted very few people. He thought that many of his colleagues in Baja California's law enforcement world were corrupt, were too scared to confront the criminals. It was very difficult because the Tijuana Municipal Police were directly with criminal groups. They protected them to the extent that when they went to kill or were going to kidnap someone, the lookouts were the police. It was terrible. I rarely got lost in Tijuana. But one autumn evening, in the midst of all this turmoil, I lost all sense of direction. I was driving to my friend Angela's house. She had moved again to El Pipila, a poor neighborhood on the eastern outskirts of the city. Night was falling, and the dust was so thick I couldn't see where I was going. In those few moments of uncertainty, my fear gave way to something harder to define, a connection to a city 
that I couldn't see, but I felt all around me. When I went home that night, this is what I wrote in my diary. It is Tuesday, and I am alone in a city that is not my own. So many dreams rise here, so many hearts beat, so many lights, but all I see is dust, like a fog rising. Rising lights of little houses surround me, longing rays of hope. Where am I going? I love it here, and I am not sure why. The lights rise and fall as cars drive up and down. I can't see the faces or even cars, just lights and dust. For months, Angela hadn't been feeling well. She didn't complain much to me, but she was too tired to cross the border. She told her youngest daughter it was as though her stomach was on fire. She couldn't keep down food. The family took her to doctors, but she didn't improve, and I was worried. Angela had survived uterine cancer long before I knew her, but she'd been skipping her checkups. I asked a friend for advice. She headed a nonprofit that focused on women's health. They sent Angela to one of the city's top oncologists. A few weeks later, I ran into that friend at the cultural center. I was getting ready to go on stage for another performance by the Tijuana Opera. This time, it was Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, and I was a noblewoman. Angela's cancer had returned, my friend told me, and it had spread. There was nothing to be done. On stage that night, I listened to Juliet sing the famed aria, Je veux vivre, I want to live but the words just made me want to cry. The next time I saw Angela, we talked about her visit with the oncologist, but we never mentioned the subject of death. Angela weakened as the days passed. I went to see her as often as I could. A month after her diagnosis, I drove to her house to celebrate New Year's Eve. She had enough energy to prepare pozole, a stew made with pork, chilies, and hominy. There was warm, sweet bonche, a cinnamon-scented punch with fresh and dried fruits. And there was music, joyful norteño rhythms from a popular group called Los Tucanes de Tijuana. It was blasting from a portable radio. That night, Angela dropped her usual reserve and laughed as she danced with her husband. I was in awe as I watched them. She wasn't worrying about the future, nor regretting the past. She was dying, but she was teaching me about loving. A few weeks later, Angela was confined to the bed that filled most of the bedroom she and her husband shared. Her children, grandchildren, and sisters visited constantly. I did too. On my last visit, I sat by her bed. I struggled to find the right words, but there was really only one thing to say. You know I love you. She was too weak to speak. She nodded yes. Angela died three months into the new year. She was 50 years old, six months younger than I was.
Angela's daughter, Angelita, likes to remember a song her mother used to sing when times were tough. It was popular in the 1960s, made famous by Los Hermanos Carrión. She would look at you and say, release your sorrows to the wind, she would always say. The wind will carry them away. And she would start singing and dancing. I always remember the song, release your sorrows to the wind, and the wind will carry them away. La, la, la. And she would grab me and twirl me around. In August 2006, the Arellano cartel's latest leader, El Tigrillo, was captured. What got him was his passion for deep sea fishing. DEA agents had been on El Tigrillo's trail for more than a year. Finally, they managed to put trackers on his 43-foot yacht, the Doc Holiday. Then they waited for the boat to cross into international waters. El Tigrillo was chasing Marlin when the U.S. Coast Guard intercepted the Doc Holiday. With the three most powerful Arellano brothers either dead or in prison, the cartel got a new leader, an Arellano nephew named Fernando Sanchez. The violence quickly escalated because Fernando Sanchez had trouble controlling his deputies. And since the capture of the number one guy the U.S. wanted to get drug cartel kingpin, Francisco Javier Arellano Felix, by U.S. agents last August, things have only gotten worse south of the border. In September, 44 people were killed, including five police officers, making it the most violent month this year. Police say the killings are the result of internal strife within the drug cartels, as others in the organization kill anyone in their way and fight for the power vacated with the Arellano Felix arrest. One of the rogue deputies was Teodoro Garcia Cimental. Everyone just called him El Teo. El Teo was a longtime assassin for the cartel, but he'd also begun targeting families for extortion and kidnapping. The violence that was once limited to criminals and cops now spread to a new class of victims, middle-class and well-to-do members of society who had no connection to organized crime. In the mid-2000s, Tijuana was growing in every direction. In the eastern part of the city, rows of tiny tracked houses took over former olive groves. Far to the west, along the scenic drive overlooking the Pacific Ocean, the landscape also changed. Housing prices had skyrocketed in the U.S., and Americans were taking cash out of their homes to acquire property on the Mexican coast. Condo towers rose almost overnight. One crisp fall day in 2006, I passed a billboard showing the smiling face of real estate magnate Donald Trump. Trump Ocean Baja Resort was advertised as the region's biggest, most luxurious oceanside development. It was going to be built on a cliff with spectacular views. Baja is one of the really hot places. Everything is going to be the best, and that's what it's all about. Hugo Torres watched the project carefully. He owns the Rosarito Beach Hotel, just a few miles down the coast from the Trump project. I, I thought it's going to be a big competition. It's going to be rough, 
because Trump is a well-known developer. The Rosarito Beach Hotel has been in Torres' family since the 1920s. It's just a half hour from the border, and Americans have been vacationing there for generations. Not one to be left behind, Torres built his own high-rise condo tower next door to his hotel. And we were selling very many condos. We were very excited. In late 2006, Torres attended a sales event for the Trump Project. It was held at a luxury hotel in San Diego. 80% of the condos in the first tower were snapped up that day, even though it hadn't even broken ground. Did you buy? No, no, I certainly did not. I did not buy. No, I, I just went to see how they do, did it because we need to compete. The Trump Project drew international attention to the stunning Pacific coastline. Who better than a flashy New York real estate magnate to tell the world that Baja California was a savvy investment? But an opposite trend was also taking place, far more quietly, out of the public eye. Wealthy Mexicans were buying homes in San Diego because they no longer felt safe in Tijuana. the violence could no longer be ignored. The anti-crime marches grew larger. The biggest drew tens of thousands of demonstrators. They dressed in white and marched for 16 days across the state. Members of the state legislature called for the military to be sent to Tijuana. On the second day of 2007, I took a break from covering the violence and drove to the port of San Felipe on the Sea of Cortez. It's about four hours from Tijuana. I was there to report on an endangered Mexican porpoise, the Vaquita Marina. I felt revived by the desert air and the starkly beautiful landscape. But then I got a call from my reporter friend, Dora Elena. Mexico's president, Felipe Calderon, has taken action. His government reversed previous policies and cracked down on drugs and the people who sell them, but his nation is losing ground and needs help. Visiting Mexico's, Mexico's newly elected president, Felipe Calderon, had sent 3,300 soldiers and federal agents to Baja California. They called it Operación Tijuana. It was a huge development. I found an internet cafe and wrote a quick story. Then I headed back to the city to do more reporting. I had seen federal operations come and go, but never anything of this magnitude. The military disarmed the entire municipal police force. Soldiers set up checkpoints throughout the city. When Calderon visited Tijuana a couple months later, even the most prominent guests had to pass through metal detectors to hear him speak. I took notes from the press section. Either we act now or we will lose Mexico, Calderon said. What's at stake is the future of the nation. Back then, I didn't have time to consider the magnitude of the moment. I was just trying to make deadline. In the next episode... An early morning shootout in eastern Tijuana leaves more than a dozen people dead. The cartel's fight to control the city 
grows even more violent. A trail of bodies lined the streets of eastern Tijuana last night. At least 13 people killed and eight injured during a vicious gun battle between drug cartels. Border City was reported, written, and created by me, Sandra Dibble. Susan White was my editor and co-creator. Our associate producers were Elise Anoush Manukian and Hafsa Fatima. Kurt Conan and AMFM Music provided original music and sound design. And Joanne Farian and Garage Media offered production support. Our theme song, Tierra Mestiza, was composed by Gerardo Tamés. It's performed by Mexico City-based Los Folkloristas. Thanks to Carmen Escobosa, who read the voice of Dora Elena Cortez. Fernando Batis, who read the voice of Lauro Ortiz. Patricia Fernández de Castro, who read the voice of Adela Navarro. Hernán del Riego, who read the voice of Julián Leizaola. And Mariana Martínez Estens, who read the voice of Angelita.